I am going to apologize for sounding so stuffed up right now because I am stuffed up. I caught a cold probably from my son, you know, toddler germs. <laughs> and um, but, you know, the podcast must go on. <laughs> it must go on. The sales are up and we're we're pulling away from shore. Yeah. And Deanna. If you're comfortable with it, do you want to tell people what you did today so we can get some awareness out about it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so this morning I donated plasma. Yes. And platelets. Um, I donated blood, I think, like four weeks ago. And they asked me for a follow-up appointment to do this. And it was nice and relaxing in the sense of I got to lay in a little bed with a blanket over me and watch... Uh, the new film power of the dog wow so no complaints and um i know that you know this country america needs platelets right now they need blood so uh yeah if you are like don't know what to give to the universe right now and you maybe don't have money uh just go and donate blood or platelets or both yeah absolutely and um i think like the American Red Cross has like ready information about it. How did you find out where you could go and give blood? Uh, it's a company called Vitality. Okay. So um, there are resources and it's true. There's like shortages in um, mm -hmm. blood and plasma right now. And as someone who needed three blood transfusions mm -hmm. <laughs> not too long ago, um, it's so important. And I guess like... Um, if you're a universal blood type too, that's really great because that was one thing is um, they didn't know what my blood type was mm. um, when I was in the ambulance. So they had to give do me. Do you know it now? I do know it now. And so everybody knows I'm B positive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that again. <laughs> yeah. I like put it in my health app on my phone. Yeah. So everybody knows. But anyway, so, so yeah, you're, you know, you just gave your time and, Mm -hmm. energy from your body for a while so and i know there's um some states and cities that they're paying people so you know maybe oh, if you yeah. need some cash totally that wow that's amazing um so today um we have a really wonderful guest um her name is apurva verghese and she's currently a student at Tulane in New Orleans, a really talented writer, clearly just very kind of like aware of social issues, particularly when it comes to issues surrounding the South Asian community in media spaces. Um, and two of the articles that she wrote that kind of caught Deanna and I's attention, um, one of them was about cultural appropriation through dress, South Asian dress. And the other was about um, Disney characters in movies who are from different places and should have accents, but they're all given, you know, generic, maybe Midwestern American accents. Mm -hmm. um, so she had a lot of really interesting things today. I really enjoyed speaking with her. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, the thing that, you know, is really important, I think, um, aside along with this conversation is to keep the conversation going and, you know, continue to read up on things and, uh, you know, be informed about issues such as this. Definitely. I mean, I think particularly, and we dive into this in the conversation, the just talking about cultural appropriation. Um, it's such a 
it's such a complicated topic that there's not really like a right answer, I right. don't think. And so we talk about that and she kind of breaks down some of the things that she wrote about in her articles. And we'll link to those in the show notes because um, you should absolutely read them. Um, she has really she has a really nice way of explaining things in like really, you know, simple ways that's easy to digest, that articles aren't super long or anything. So, um, but they are poignant and they make really um, interesting points about these Mm -hmm. types of issues. So it was really a pleasure to talk to her. And um, we're going to play you our interview with her that we did earlier this week. And just a little preview for the holiday season because I'm going to be taking some time off at the end of the mm-hmm. month. Um, I think we'll, we're will we going to have one more episode next week and then maybe a couple weeks off with some reruns and then yeah. we'll be back. And in the meantime, we are still going to keep up with our Thirsty 30 Patreon episodes where we talk about Bravo TV, all the other shows going on on Bravo besides Family Karma, um, and pop culture in general. There's always something good to talk about. There's always. I mean, this week I've been uh, reading page six and there's just so much to talk about. And (laughs) especially award season is coming up. They announced the Golden Globe nominations and the Oscar nomination should be, I don't know when that's released, but uh, I think like any day. Yeah, I feel like those, yeah, the Golden Globes, I like the Golden Globes more than the Oscars. Mm. So we'll talk about all of those things. I do feel like right now there's a lot of like good TV that's Mm -hmm. on right now that we can talk about, like the new Sex and the City reboot. Um, Succession just ended, which is really fantastic. And um, yeah, there's just a lot to get into. So join us there for a dollar a month and we put out an episode a week. Otherwise, we hope that you enjoy this interview with Apoorva Verghese. How are you? I'm good. How are y'all? Good. Thank you for being flexible with the scheduling for this. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Don't worry about it. It's totally fine. So you're a student right now? Yeah, I am. Where are you studying and what are you studying? Um, I go to Tulane in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm studying linguistics and psychology with a Spanish minor. Oh, my. So you're you're very busy then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, how much more do you have to go in your degree? Um, I'm a junior, so like three more semesters, but um, I, I don't know. I might be able to graduate a little early. We'll see. It depends on how everything goes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We were really, Deanna and I have conversations about cultural appropriation a lot. And yeah. Um, I think, Deanna, you found her article and I did. It was very and, interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, from from someone who is white, I have questions, you know, uh, you know, just pertaining to and Indra, obviously, I want you to fill in, but I was reading it and I was uh, I don't know if I want to. St- if you guys mind if I start with this. So yeah, go ahead. um so my first day at NYU, um, my friend or my roommate, she wasn't my friend at this time, who I'd never met before, she's also white and she goes, um, you know, back when Time Out, I don't even know if Time Out New York is still a thing, but back when they had the magazine. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Time Out? And I am. I don't know about you, Apoorva. Okay. I've definitely heard of it. I don't know too much about it though. So it's basically like what's going on in the city and this is 
what you want to like do. And and so she came first day with a Time Out magazine. And, you know, we were both there as two white people being like, you know, what do we do with ourselves? And she was like, let's go to Queens tomorrow to go get um, henna tattoos on our hands. Mm-hmm. And this is like early 2000s, right? This is 1999. Okay. And it's funny because my brain washed it out all these years. And it was only through reading your articles specifically the one about dress that I remembered this and I'm confused on how I should feel about it um and so I just like you know something like that like your opinion and and is it a time thing that it was the 90s is it you know so we went into uh the the Indian the South Asian section of Queens and got it done yeah so is that a fair question to start this conversation (laughs) yeah I mean, so, I mean, your article in The Tempest about um, the name of it is a reminder that South Asian clothing is not yours for the taking kind of addresses this type of behavior. And I don't think I don't think Deanna, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're like you're feeling defensive about your decision or not. Like, it's just like I'm curious about like that decision and like how that tracks for people these days. (laughs) I'm not trying to be a white person to take over the space at first but it's just like it's interesting how the brain forgets stuff like that and it's only through reading like an analysis of something to that focuses on a white person doing that kind of jogs the brain yeah I think I think that's a completely valid question I think it's something that a lot of people do have just pertaining like what am I allowed to do with like another person's culture um I think Honestly, it's hard to just sort of like boil it down to in this particular instance, like is what I did okay? Because there are just so many layers that go into like what makes up the whole idea of cultural appropriation in the first um, place. I think I think you mentioned like going into the South Asian um, area of, of New York or Queens. I don't remember where you said. I think there are a lot of people who like would go to yeah. a white artist and be like, can you do my henna for me? And that's obviously very problematic. Um, I think there are people like I've gone with my white friends. I've done my henna like for them and stuff like that. Um, I think having like two white people go and do it purely for aesthetic purposes is also like another thing to consider about what might make it kind of problematic but I think I also did mention this in the article that you know as far as cultural appropriation goes it's exploitation on the level of you're using another person's culture purely for some way to elevate yourself whether that be in like a cosmetic sense or like an intellectual sense um just finding some way to make yourself seem better by taking someone else's culture. And I think that's especially problematic when it's coming from someone who comes from a background that has continuously exploited and dehumanized that um, culture in the first place. Um, so really, I, I don't know. I understand like what you're saying in terms of like, is what I did okay? And I, I really don't know if I can tell you that it is okay or that it isn't okay. I think there's just a lot that I don't know about, you know, where your decision to do that came from or like where your background with people of color is. Um, but I, I do understand your question. It's definitely valid. How do you feel about it now, Deanna? Like looking back on it, do you feel like, would you do that again? Would you not? Um, I would not. If Indra, if you had, um, uh, say like if you had an event celebrating something in your life I would probably and you had a henna artist there I would ask you should I do it or not and I think it's interesting because since then I remember just seeing henna artists both 
both South Asian and non-South Asians at like street fairs and stuff like that. And also it was a time which Indra and I always talk about, which you're you're very too young for, is <laughs> South Asian culture was exploited so much in the late 90s with Madonna, with Gwen Stefani. And it was so trendy that, you know, I remember getting a skirt from Contempo Casuals with a South Asian design design that I wore to a club in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's not always exploited. But but Indra, you were you and you were kind of around my age, it was like this burst of like, we're going to embrace South Asian culture, watching Madonna do yoga, watch Madonna's rayolite. Um, but is it really embracing it? I think is that's what I'm saying. Question. It's like embrace like the aesthetic of it without kind of going into, you know, what the culture really is. Yeah. Apoorva, I really liked how your article kind of broke down some of the common pushback that people will give about cultural appropriation. Mm. Um, You know, one that actually I haven't encountered, but it sounds, but I can see how it could come up. It's kind of like the Black Lives Matter, no, all lives matter. And then it's like, no, this is why Black Lives Matter (laughs) Um, was like Westerners saying like, well, aren't you appropriating white culture by wearing like a t-shirt and jeans um so can you say a little bit more about like why that's not the same thing yeah definitely um and i think it's kind of the same issue with any topic that comes up regarding like the lives or rights of marginalized people and that's that power like power dynamic between communities is so central um, to any sort of argument we have, whether that be like, you know, Black Lives Matter or like, cultural appropriation, why that's wrong. Um, but basically, I mean, Western people have never been ridiculed for wearing jeans or T-shirts or sweaters. I mean, that was considered the norm. And if anything, Western culture was forced onto marginalized communities like South Asian um, countries and communities, even in America. I mean, I grew up in Texas. If I walked around wearing a salvar kameez everywhere, I don't think that would be very well <laughs> regarded. Um, so, I mean, it's never been like, honestly, if I could, I would love that. I love my culture and I think it's beautiful, but I don't think I have the privilege of being able to embrace it so openly as Western people do. So I wear Western clothes because I grew up in a Western culture and I know that that's what is accepted. Um, I don't think that white people have been oppressed ever in um, existence for being white specifically. Of course, there are communities that have been oppressed, but by the nature of being Western and being privileged, um, you cannot appropriate a culture that has dominated so many other communities in the past. Um, That's what I would say to that argument. Yeah, that's really important. One thing that like, I also liked better your article and I wonder what your experience is with this is like, I too, you know, I have Indian clothing that and jewelry and things like this that I, I'll always like when I go to India to see my family, I'm always like I'm around a bunch of people wearing South Asian clothing. And so, you know, I'll buy some things and I'll wear it while I'm there. And I'm like, oh, I'm totally going to wear this when I get back mm-hmm. to the U.S., And then I come back and maybe I wear it a few times, but for some reason, maybe I feel awkward. Maybe I don't feel accepted wearing that. I don't want to be perceived as different any more than I already do. I stop wearing it and it just sits in my closet for a long time. Um, So I'm curious if you've had 
the same experience or something similar like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think growing up, same. Like I would go to India and I would we would walk through like the bazaars and see all this pretty jewelry or we would go dress shopping. And I would just, I mean, like I said, I think it's such a beautiful culture. Like you can't help but love it. And I think that's the reason why it's so exploited as well. Um, but I would always, you know, my mom would buy me a couple silver camisas or um, some like earrings or necklaces. And I would bring it back, of course, with the intention of wearing it because why would I buy it otherwise? But when the spaces aren't available, you know, like safe spaces for expressing your culture within like a South Asian community, um, they're really, I just didn't feel comfortable wearing it. So I absolutely understand your experience. I think I did grow up in Houston. So even if like in the general public, I wasn't comfortable, usually we found spaces. I had a lot of South Asian friends, so they would have events. Um, When we went to church and stuff like that, we went to a South Asian church, so I would wear it there. Yeah, but especially actually since coming to college, I go to like a school that's 80% white. Um, Mm -hmm. And just there's no space for it. I mean, my freshman year, I actually brought... I saw our companies just for fun because my sister, when she was in university, went to a more diverse school and had events like that. Um, but since freshman, first semester freshman year, I've never brought it back because I just, I didn't have the space for it. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think I've made attempts to kind of integrate like some of the things I have, like I've worn the jumkas occasionally or like I've worn bangles just for fun because they kind of go with what I um, normally wear anyway. But fully expressing yourself through clothes, um, it's difficult, definitely. Mm-hmm. So it's that- Can I ask both of <laughs> yeah, you, sorry, a question? Is there anything recently in the media, whether it's pop culture, that you both have seen that is appropriation of South Asian culture that might have missed a lot of us um, outside of the South Asian community? Yeah, Porva, you go first. (laughs) Yeah, I think a big one, I'm not sure this was necessarily missed. I think it was called out a lot and because, you know, social media and everything, Mm -hmm. it kind of caught on. But kind of just like, you know, boho chic fashion, um, the stuff people wear to Coachella, um Hannah mm, like mm. I think you were saying there was like a huge exploitation of South Asian culture like in the 90s I think there was like a resurgence of that during like you know the peak of like Coachella and festival culture and everything people would get henna um art done all the time they wore like bindis um I think like there are companies that make like Salvar Kameez-esque clothes as like bikini cover-ups and stuff like that um yeah, yeah. so I definitely think there's been a huge resurgence in that like genre of fashion so to speak specifically mm-hmm. one I don't know if either of you saw this um so Rihanna was actually really outspoken about the farmers protests in India mm. which was like nice because like this big star in the west was like bringing awareness to you know a really significant problem in South Asia um but there was some controversy around some photo that she posted on her Instagram where she was wearing a necklace with um, Ganesh on it, who is the elephant god in Hinduism. And um, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. I I don't even know if I'm... Mm. And I think this points to like, how complicated the space was. And I think your article also referenced that you have personal boundaries and what you consider cultural appropriation. And we're all kind of, we all kind of have those. Like I have that too. Mm -hmm. And it's like, can I forgive Rihanna for wearing this? Like, and the other issue with with it was she did not have very much other clothing on. And some Mm. people said, oh, this is disrespectful to this, um, in this God from Hinduism. Um, you know, 
what does all of that mean alongside her actually, you know, taking an interest in like Indian politics and like, you know, human rights issues and things like that, too. So I was inclined to like maybe give her a pass a little bit while also understanding like this is a little problematic. Like, why are you wearing that? Do you know anything about Ganesh? Like, what do you know about Hinduism? Um, And for me, I think I talk about a lot. The line of cultural appropriation for me is like, how much has this person like done the work or like understood what this is really about? Like, are they wearing a bindi because they think it looks cool or because they like there's they understand its significance and there's like Mm -hmm. some reason for that. And there's very few cases where I can see a person, a white person wearing a bindi and it being like Mm -hmm. not cultural appropriation. Um, But like you said in your article, like if I, you know, if I decided I wanted to get married and have an Indian wedding, Mm -hmm. I would probably tell all of my guests, I would welcome them to wear a South Asian dress if they wanted, regardless of their race. And I wouldn't feel offended by that. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of like, I don't know. So that I don't really have like a question there or anything, but that's just like some thoughts that I have. That was that was so helpful. Yeah. I so I mean, I don't know, Apoorva, did The other question I was sort of wondering about was, so it sounds like you came from a community growing up where you did have a lot of like South Asian community and friends around you. And now at Tulane, it's like, you know, there's a lot more white people. Um, Have you found a South Asian community at Tulane? Um, Has it been difficult to kind of connect with that? And what sort of things have you learned about that as you're kind of about to graduate next year and kind of move into outside of your educational experience? Yeah, um, it's definitely been hard. I don't think I've really found a South Asian community. We definitely have, you know, like multicultural associations, but I feel like they're just very limited um, in what you can do. I mean, First, not like everyone is a part of it. And then two, sometimes, you know, you just don't really want to like be in that space. I think that personally, I just, I feel like I don't want to like be in a space where it's, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but um, that has kind of like inherently marginalized on campus. It does feel a bit awkward because I feel like then you're also tokenized a little. There are a lot of people who come up to you and Mm. kind of are like, you become like a, a figurehead for the South Asian community. And I don't necessarily want to be mm-hmm. that during my college experience. Like that's not yeah. why I came here. Um, so it definitely has been hard. Um, one thing that has really helped me is writing. Um, our school newspaper that I write for has a section that's dedicated to marginalized communities on campus called Intersections, um, which I love. I was the editor of that section last year. So I took that opportunity to really just Mm -hmm. kind of voice my concerns about Tulane, about our community at large. Um, A lot of times the section just turned into my rants, but people were interested in them. So that has really helped me just like finding, even if I can't, you know, find a space where I feel safe, finding a space where I feel safe to express my thoughts um, in whatever capacity I feel. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, really, I think in a, you know, going forward, once I graduate, I think the idea is just, you're not always going to find spaces you feel safe expressing your own culture and everything. And you kind of just have to Mm -hmm. make what you have work for you and do the best with the resources you have available. I can really relate to what you said about like, not wanting to be a figurehead for your culture in a certain space. I experienced that a lot. I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is extremely white. And I'm one of the few like Indian people and and along the appropriation lines, 
Eastern religion, culture, and thought is really like quote unquote revered around here and appropriated in all sorts of problematic (laughs) ways. And so I feel like walking around just in town sometimes I'm like, you know, whether people are thinking it or not, I'm feeling like, oh, they're looking at me as like an example of what that is Mm -hmm. maybe just because like I am clearly Indian or South Mm -hmm. Asian. So that really resonated with me. Can I ask you both, uh, Porva and Indra, so have you all, have your parents ever said anything about appropriation or if they haven't, have you had uh, conversations with them about appropriation of South Asian culture? My parents Because I'm curious what they think. I don't know about you, Apoorva. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting the conversations I have with my parents because they don't see an issue with um, what I see as appropriation. Mm. Um, And I think that's, again, a kind of confusion between the idea of appreciation and appropriation. Like when my parents, you know, see like Mm what people wear South Asian clothing, they're just like, yeah, they just think it's pretty. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm like, well, if they're just going to use South Asian culture and not do anything to uplift the communities that created that culture, then that's problematic. And I think because my parents are immigrants, I'm also an immigrant, but like I grew up here for the most part of my life. So I think having them come from, you know, India with the idea that white people are so much better than Indians, because I think that is an idea that's pushed in India, that whiteness is superior. And then to come to America and have white people using Indian culture is something that's the reverse of what they've known. And for that reason, they they like it. And they think it's a good thing and something that should be acknowledged and appreciated by South Asian communities. But I think when you are, you know, a, a small Indian kid growing up in America, you get a very different idea of how people perceive um, South Asian communities. Um, And then to see those same people turn around and exploit South Asian culture is a very different experience from what my parents had personally. Yeah, that's really well said. You didn't write about this in your article, but it's along the lines of cultural appropriation of like Eastern kind of culture that Deanna and I have been talking about a lot lately is um, yoga culture in the U.S. and kind of how there's this sort of like whole feeling of like, oh, you know, this is this great Eastern thing that we're bringing here and we appreciate it so much. And even the people who go through the teacher trainings and everything and say namaste at the end of their classes and whatever, you know, it's like, I always do like a little bit of an eye roll when I'm in those situations. Like, and I'm, it's kind of like, in some ways, you know, we've also been reading about like these parts of the yoga culture like I don't know if you've heard of kundalini yoga and some of the like harmful cultish type behavior that's gone in in that community um but like this sort of like harmful space that's come in around like wellness and yoga that like take South Asian thought and like appropriates it for these ways and um I'm just curious if you've just knowing you and what you've written how smart you are I'm just curious if you've thought about any of this um in your own just like life or anything yeah I have definitely thought about it um I'm not like into yoga personally it's just never really been for me and um I will also mention like I'm I'm not um super in tune with the cultural significance behind yoga either because that's you know a different um Mm -hmm. part of india than i'm from but i think one thing is from like most of the people i know who go to yoga first of all most people go are white and most of their instructors are white so i feel like it's kind of become a largely white-centric place that 
I mean, from what I can tell, people will like, you know, yeah, say like the phrases in Sanskrit or Hindi at the beginning and end of classes. Um, and then I'm always just wondering, like, do you know what that means? Like, you know, even just from a very literal linguistic sense, do you know what that means? Um, I think my sister once took a yoga class where the instructor started with saying namaste and went on into a rant about how that was a very big religious spiritual saying. And my sister was like, is it? I'm not sure that's true. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I definitely have thought about it. I think it's a huge space that culture has been completely appropriated and manipulated as well to serve a completely different community. So it's not even really like they're pretending this is really even built too much on South Asian community. It's become like a white culture um, element. And I think that yoga that exists in South Asia is completely different than yoga that exists in America or other white spaces. Yeah, it's like I've heard you hear such <laughs> crazy stuff. Like people are like, oh, hot yoga is made hot. So it's like hot, the heat in India that like is the same thing or whatever. I'm like, what? Like, did you just make that up? <laughs> like, where did that come from? And like, um, you know, it's definitely... In some ways, I feel like it's the silent, most harmful version of a cultural appropriation in America, because um, to take it one step further, like, for instance, in this cult we're talking about, there was this white woman from Colorado who actually died recently, but she was kind of high up in this kundalini yoga space. She like wore turbans and all white and you know like really that whole part of it was there but she was also like emotionally abusing people um through this guise of using yoga as this like holistic moral practice and it just felt it just feels like it's opening up this space to like really um manipulate people in harmful ways and um it, well, and I think, yeah. do you mind me adding intro? I think the interesting thing about, well, I'll call her Katie. I'm not going to call her by her her name that she wanted to be called by, um, her South Asian name. But I think the interesting thing about Katie and everything is she used Yogi Bajan, a South Asian brown man, to stand behind the teachings to do the abuse. And it's like, how, how can, we, you know, how can this happen? Yeah. And the money that, you know, she was making through that. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like a business, basically. Yeah. And that's like... Um, and using a brown man's face and teachings to make so much money and gain so much power. Yeah. it's um, And I think that goes back to what you were saying originally, Apoorva, that it's like, if you're using this culture for your own benefit without, like, really appreciating it or, like, you know, uplifting that culture in some way, in another way, it's harmful no matter what. Um, so that's really interesting. I, I did want to also mention, um, I was looking through all of your articles on The Tempest. There's so many great ones. Um, and one that like really stood out to me that I had literally never thought about before, which is wild, is in Disney movies that feature people from different cultures around the world, everyone speaks in an Amer like a American white, like, you know, Midwestern <laughs> accents. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that article. What inspired you to write that? Like, how did you even think about that? I can't believe I never thought about that. Yeah, no. And that's entirely valid because like I said, I'm a linguistics major. So I study, I study like linguistic discrimination, okay. social linguistics mm -hmm. as well. 
Um, and I also hadn't really thought about it. You know, I recognized that like all the main characters spoke in American accents, but it wasn't until like I took a language and culture class that kind of mentioned, you know, linguistic discrimination. This is what it is. It's when you have like dialects that are villainized or seen as other for some reason because they're not standard. Um, and then I can't remember, I think it might've been Aladdin. I was watching some Disney movie and I was like, this is so sketchy. Why are they doing this? Um, because if you watch it, yes, like Aladdin and Jasmine both speak in standard American accents, like not even like, you know, Southern or New York accents, just like the most standard possible American accent you can have. But then you have um, Jasmine's dad, who is supposed to act as some sort of comic relief, I think has like this vaguely stereotypical South Asian accent. And then Jafar, I don't know how to categorize his accent, but it's definitely not standard and it's definitely otherized. Um, and that's actually a whole different conversation about like how Disney queer codes a ton of villains um, through like dialect and through dress and everything. But it's really, really problematic, especially in children's media, because I mean, children are sponges, they absorb everything. So when they see, you know, mm. all these people speaking in an American accent, they're good, anyone else is bad. And those are like lessons that stick with you. And, you know, it's not just media and it's not just like implicit bias. There's very overt, explicit bias towards people um, in America, around the world. But I think we really see it in America who speak in a non-standard um, American accent. And isn't it true that the people who voiced Jafar and Jasmine's dad are white? <laughs> Pretty sure. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like that is just it's like, yeah. And the other thing that you referenced in the article, which was really I didn't know about was in the George Zimmerman trial for Trayvon Martin's death, that a woman who testified spoke in a uncommon dialect that was maybe difficult to understand. And they dismissed her testimony because it was too hard to understand. I mean, people's lives are like on the line with that type of thing. And um yeah, the way that we discriminate around language and um, accents is really, really interesting to me. And I think it's it's something that we don't always consider, but happens all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the George Zimmerman case, it was, I mean, that is, I think, so tragic because there are a lot of stories that say that, I believe her name is Rachel John Tile, um, that her testimony was key in prosecuting Zimmerman. Um, and if it hadn't been dismissed, then it likely would have people probably would have been prosecuted because, I mean, it was damning evidence. Um, but she yeah. spoke in African-American vernacular English, which is, um, it is in itself a slightly problematic term, but it's a broad generalized um, term for the way that a lot of people in the Black community speak. Um, and it's very otherized in America. It's very um, different from, you can tell, the standard American accent. And there are a lot of stereotypes associated with that. One is that, you know, people think it's hard to understand when really it's not. Um, millions of people speak like that in their daily life and they're understood perfectly fine. But when it comes into professional settings or like legal settings, they're suddenly hard to understand. They're, you know, they don't speak properly. They come across as uneducated when this just isn't true. Um, I mean, there are a ton of studies that have shown people who speak in African-American vernacular English have harder times in job interviews, like getting apartments and stuff like that, because people just immediately have these stereotypes associated with them. Um, so it's, it's really terrible, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always um, reference in media, like, you know, there's the Disney thing that just, I guess, erases 
the accents, which is problematic. But then for so long, we've talked about this with a lot of our guests, like the only brown representation in Western media was Apu on The Simpsons. And he is so like, I mean, there's an example of someone with a very thick Indian accent using that as like the comedic thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure who voiced, voiced by a white actor, yeah, I, Hank Azaria or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like the levels of how problematic that is just yeah. like layer up on. And, you know, and so we talk a lot about how, you know, with other guests in between us that I felt like really heartened to see more representation of brown people in media and all these things. But that, you know, I think what we're talking about today is there's still like problematic elements in that and how do we work with that? So, you know, I'm curious to hear your experience as someone, as a brown person, like experiencing media throughout your life, how you felt the trajectory has gone, um, where you think we are, what work we need to do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I I mean, you're right. Like when I was younger, there was barely any media representation of brown people, especially people who spoke in an accent. And when they did exist, they were super exaggerated. Um, I think me and my sister have talked about this so many times, but I've never heard a brown person who speaks like Apu from The Simpsons because people don't speak like that. It's just not the way you no. talk. It's an extremely hyperbolized idea of how brown people are just to make us look like idiots. Um, But Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely think like we have come far in the sense that at the very least that's not considered appropriate anymore, even if people do want to get defensive about it and people did get defensive about it, you know, when, um, oh, I can't remember the comedian who called it out in his, um, in the problem with Apu. I can't remember his name. Uh, Who was it? Um, (laughs) I actually don't know who it was, but. Yeah, but um, I think that was like a great, great thing to put out there because people really need to understand. I can't believe they let him be on air for so long, but um, I still, I still do think personally, I'm glad that we have, you know, some South Asian representation through, I think one of the biggest like shows that we have right now is never have I ever on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I I do think it's great, I'm glad that we have a show representing South Asian culture um, respectfully to any degree. I do still personally find some issue with the fact that we're hiring Um, South Asian actors who don't actually speak in South Asian accents to portray people who are, you know, immigrants who speak in those accents and not. Um, Because one, I I just think you're taking away opportunities from people who could appropriately represent those um, scenes. And two, you're still perpetuating the idea that, you know, it's just an accent to put on. It's just a performance. It's just a role. Like it's not lives that are being represented. It's just kind of, you know, an act. And I don't love that personally. Is who's an example of that? I actually don't. Is the mother in Never Have I Ever? Yes. So the mother, cousin, and the dad. I think all of them are American, to my knowledge, in real life. The actors, um, but they all they all portray oh, okay. people with Indian accents in the show. Um, I believe they're all American. If you're wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, I have to look into that. I thought Richa Morjani maybe was. Um, grew up in India. She might have. I know know at least a few of them are actually Americans portraying, you know, the Indian accent. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that before that, you know, there are (laughs) lots of actors out there who actually do speak (laughs) in those accents who could probably be in those shows. Um, Yeah, that's an interesting thing to consider. Um, 
Are there things that you see in media still that kind of like make you cringe in terms of like our representation? I I guess you just talked about one. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that. One other thing I do think just in media, and this doesn't really necessarily have to do with language, but I do think that like Western media's representation of India is very Hindu centric and North Indian centric, I think. Um, Yes. I feel like, I mean, India is one of the most diverse places in the world, yet you have pretty much every representation Mm -hmm. of Indian people. They speak Hindi, they're Hindu, they're fair skinned, um, and they're just kind of the quintessential Indian that you think of or a white person would think of when they think of India. And growing up as someone who is darker skinned, does not speak Hindi, um, is not Hindu, uh, it was kind of hard because, I mean, I never have seen a, a Malayali Christian dark skinned person on my TV screen. And I don't think I will anytime soon as much as I would like to. Um, but that is one thing. I do think it's a very essentialized image of such a diverse country. Um, and especially considering, I think, the political climate mm-hmm. in India right now, that's a very dangerous path to be on. Yes, the Hindu nationalist mode that has crept up since Modi has been prime minister is... It's terrible, really. And I was just talking with my mom yesterday about, you know, obviously there's been issues with prejudice against anyone who's non-Hindu for decades, but that the intolerance has just skyrocketed in the last however many years. And it's similar, you know, Trump's white Christian America, that um, that's correct and everything else is wrong. And radicalizing people who fit into that category to say, yes, everything else is wrong and we are right. Um, So there's parallels there for people who may not be, who are listening, who may not be as aware of the political climate Mm -hmm. in India right now. Deanna, do you have some other questions? Uh, yeah, actually, um, just just some advice. Um, so I was going to a concert. It was uh, like the Dead End Company concert. And I went to a bar that was hosting like, you know, a pregame for it. And there is a white woman with a bindi on. Uh, she was younger than me. She was in her 20s. Um, and I didn't know if I could approach, if I had the right to approach her and how I should approach her and if I should approach her. Um, What do you all think of that? Because I was just kind of having my beers and getting more like Jenny was with me, a mutual friend. And I was just like kind of getting angry. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. And if I should do something. It's a good question. Aforva, do you have any <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah, personally, I would encourage it. I think that um, calling out other people's actions, especially people in your own community, is one of the best ways to show up and be an ally to marginalized people. Um, so, because I mean, personally, I feel uncomfortable calling out people in public. I think I do it a lot over social media and in my articles because I feel safe over the internet. But um, the idea of actually, you know, mm-hmm. approaching someone and physically confronting them in person is scary to me because if I'm approaching them in the first place, there's a reason. And that reason is probably they're doing something mm-hmm. wrong. And that means that I don't really want to, you know, engage with that person. So having someone else personally, I think take the initiative to go up and tell them what they're doing is wrong makes me feel more comfortable um, when I see that happen. So I would say do it next time. <laughs> How would you um, initiate that conversation um without being confrontate like like i'm going to be confrontational um but i mean she was she was smoking a lot of pot she was very drunk and <laughs> yeah, so that's a whole situation. you know what i mean <laughs> and so and and she was obviously it's dead in company so it's such a white space and i hope you don't mind that i ask both of your opinions about this i feel like it's hard to know 
Like you, Apoorva, I feel like I want to say things in a lot of situations and I and I don't because sometimes it's like I feel like my safety is kind of, yeah. you know, in question or whatever, or like it's just a lot of work on top of the work that people of color already do kind of just moving through the world. So I don't think I I don't think I know what your experience is <sighs> enough, like seeing someone like that in your like as a white person to a white person mm-hmm. to be able to even know exactly what I would say. Yeah. And I do think, but I agree that saying something is nice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a great way to be an ally. Sorry, Apoorva, I cut you off. No, it's mm-hmm. totally fine. Um, I was just going to say, I mean, I do think like if you feel unsafe going up to someone, don't do it. Like if you're aggressive, don't do it. But also if you don't think it's going to have any constructive point at all, if they're just completely out of their mind to understand what you're saying, then I don't think there is a point either. But I do think kind of just in everyday daily mm-hmm. life, you do see people doing inappropriate things. And yeah. when you have the capacity to call them out and you think they have the capacity to understand, um, yeah, I would always encourage it. But I do think context is important. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your your advice. So, you know, we found your articles on The Tempest. Um can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how they can maybe follow you on social media or read your work? Because I think your point of view is just really fantastic. I know I'm going to keep following your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, let us know how our listeners can find you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, so you can definitely visit The Tempest and find my author's page on there. My social media is there as well. I'd also recommend checking out some of the other articles. It's a really great women-led organization um, if you're interested in finding more perspectives from marginalized people. Um, and then, like I said, I also write for the Tulane Hullabaloo. So if you want to follow me over there, you can read a lot more of my stories, um, especially if you're interested in like college life and stuff like that. But definitely feel free to connect with me over Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to talk to any of you. Great. And I'll put your, what is like your um, Twitter handle? Um, at Aporva Burgis. So just my name. <laughs> okay, great. So that's how people can find you. And I'll put that in the show notes so people know how to find you. And um, yeah, just thank you for sharing you your so perspective much. with us, but also just through your articles. Um you know, when we have these questions, you know, we do a Google search and then these things come up and they kind of, they're really helpful, I think, because these conversations, like I was saying, it's like, it's so complicated. There's so many different things to take into account. It's just nice to hear different perspectives on these really kind of tough topics. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with, is your semester over? It is almost over. We get out on the 21st. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Well, well last push and good luck with <laughs> the home stretch. Yes, and happy Definitely. new year. Happy new year. Thank happy you guys. Year. Bye. <laughs>